listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hi, everyone. So I'm curious, is anybody else out there experiencing an uptick in worry, concern, and anxiety? When someone asks me, how are you? I usually have two customary responses. The first is, I haven't decided yet today. And the second is, nice to see you. This week, though, I have a third option. Just below a panic attack, you? While I tend to run anxious, the news around the coronavirus and COVID-19, which was just declared an official pandemic this morning, has me ratcheted way, way up. It also has me thinking about how much anxiety likes to hang out in grief land. Grief and anxiety are pretty good friends. Whether it's worrying about our own health, the health and safety of others, or just good old panic, the kind that seems to show up out of nowhere and commandeer our bodies for a while, anxiety can be intense. Lots of people like to try and reassure others by saying, don't worry, it's not likely to happen, which maybe for some people is reassuring. The tricky part, though, is when the not likely to happen has happened, and it's happened to you or to someone you care about. That's when our minds get really, really good at dismissing words of reassurance around likelihood. So what can we do? Well, thankfully, I had the chance to interview Claire Bidwell-Smith, author of Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief, a while back, and I thought this might be the perfect time to get that episode back in the rotation. So you've got our conversation to listen to. You might also check out Megan Devine's book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, because she's got a great section in there all about managing anxiety and grief. Another resource is a tip sheet we created at the Dougie Center that's all about taking care of yourself. It's called Self-Care Planning, and I'll link to it in the show notes. In short, though, this tip sheet was our attempt to break down the sometimes overwhelming caring for yourself scene into more manageable segments. It walks you through three main ways to help yourself out, and it has a cute acronym, A-N-D, in which the A is for attending to your thoughts and feelings. And that can look like a lot of different things. Talking with formal and informal support people, writing, listening to music, doing a quick self-check-in. There's lots of options. The N stands for nourishing and nurturing your mind and body. So just think the basics. Drink water. Like right now, go drink some water. Eat something nourishing. Take some conscious breaths. Move your body and try to put yourself to bed mostly on time. Finally, the D is for distraction. And this one's my personal favorite. These are the things that enable you to take a brain break. So you could watch something that makes you laugh, listen to a podcast. Hey, look, you're already doing that. Read a book, preferably not one about pandemics or global health crises, unless that is what feels like a break to you. Go look at something outside, birds, trees, flowers, squirrels, whatever works. So there you have it, the A-N-D plan for shoring up your nervous system and your capacity to support yourself and other people. As we make our way through these anxiety-producing times, remember, check in with yourself, check in with your people, ask people to check in on you, 
While we might be looking at a period of time with less interaction, there are still ways to create community. One of those ways is listening to the show, so we're really glad you're out there. Okay, so here's that original episode with Claire Bidwell-Smith, all about grief and anxiety. Think for a minute about what you've learned about grief from books, movies, and TV. You've probably seen people being very sad or super angry. A favorite plot line is someone who is angry until someone or something breaks through to the sadness that lies beneath their fury. What you probably haven't seen or read through are stories of grief that involve fear and anxiety. For years, anxiety has been left out of the conversation about grief, even though it's extremely common. When someone dies, many of us expect to cry and feel frustrated, but we aren't as prepared for intense fear and worry. Worry that everyone in our lives will die. Fear that every ache or tired day means that we are dying. Laying in bed at night, unable to sleep as we spin over how to do day-to-day life without our people. When we are grieving, anxiety can catch us off guard. Either because we've never dealt with anxiety before, and it's confusing, or because the anxiety we already do well has ratcheted up to untenable levels. Claire Bidwell-Smith, a licensed counselor, author, mother, and grieving daughter, just released a new book, Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief, and it delves into all the ways anxiety can be part of grief. I first learned about Claire over 10 years ago when I read her poignant and heartbreaking memoir, The Rules of Inheritance. Claire, what an honor to talk with you today. Thank you for being a guest on Grief Out Loud. Thank you. I'm honored equally to be here with you. I love the work that you guys do. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with your story, can you talk just a little bit about why supporting those in grief is so important to you? Yeah. um, I was 14 years old when both of my parents got cancer at the same time, and I was an only child. My mother died when I was 18, and my father died when I was 25. And so that was a good 10 years of watching them go through treatments and chemos and surgeries and a lot of ups and downs for our little family, and then a lot of loss for me. It was incredibly difficult. You know, I think it would be difficult for anyone. And one of the big factors as well was that their deaths were very different. And my experiences being with them through their deaths were very different. And my mother's was very difficult. And I was not there with her when she died. And she was in a lot of denial leading up to it. And that left me with years of anguish. My father, on the other hand, really kind of chose to embrace his death. And he asked me to help him support him in that endeavor. We both kind of stepped up to to facing end of life and to really being present to it. And it was such a different experience to lose him. And it really affected my grief process in a different way. And consequently, I learned that there are different, you know, ways to grieve and that some of the ways that we end up grieving don't have to be as hard as they are. And so I went through a period of years after both of their deaths where I struggled just in the world. I was so young. I was 25 and all of my peers were, you know, in their first post-college jobs and they were in new relationships and they were living in new apartments and cities for the first time. And I was kind of doing those things, but I was also living, you know, without any kind of family or anchor and a lot of trauma and anxiety and sadness that I was carrying around. So it took me some time to really kind of work through that. When I did, I ended up going back and getting my master's in clinical psychology and becoming a therapist. And my first job out of grad school was in hospice. And that was 10 years ago. So I've now been in the field for a long time. 
I have had a private practice in Los Angeles uh, for about eight years, and I've seen so many people through their grief processes. And I think there's so much beauty to be found in grief um, if we can look at it the right ways or move into healing places with it. And so that is the work that I try to do on a daily basis. Well, and it's interesting to think about how the two different circumstances of each of your parents' death and how they approached their death and how they approached talking about their death and their illness with you, or in the case of your mom, not talking about that. It seems to reflect so well with kind of our work of of helping and hoping that adults will be open and honest with kids about what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's really something that we need to continue to chip away at as a culture. Um, Just talking about death, understanding death, looking at end of life care. I've gotten involved in recent years with a lot of end of life physicians that are trying to kind of change this philosophy and attitude we have. Because when I look back at my mother's death, it wasn't her fault that she was in denial. It was really our culture at large and partly our medical system, our Western medicine, um, how we deal with death and end of life care in that system that is at fault. There wasn't really a lot of people sitting down and and trying to help me and my father understand that she was going to die and help her too. Um, So all of us were in denial. And then when she died, it was, it was so difficult. I mean, she'd been sick for almost five years and yet it was shocking to me that she died. I didn't see it coming. I wasn't prepared. We hadn't said goodbye. I wasn't even there with her. And those things made my grief process so unbearable in moments and they could have been avoided. I hear so often from kids and teens and adults of, well, my mom had cancer, but I didn't think she was going to die. She just had always had cancer and how how shocking and surprising a death from a long-term illness can be. And it's such a good reminder in that the world oftentimes will say, oh, a sudden death, like a car accident or a death by suicide, those must be shocking. But if someone died of cancer, you knew it was coming. And there's this expectation that people will have a very different experience. And that's not always true. Exactly. And, you know, there's a fine line. We all want to be positive when we are, you know, grappling with someone who's, who's ill and we want to hope for the best and we don't want to, you know, immediately say, oh, they're going to die just because they have cancer. Um, I think the trick lies in just being present and being able to have conversations no matter which way things end up going, you know, just really being able to talk about our fears and anxieties, our hopes, our relationships, um, making amends with anything that's left unsaid that's the the tightrope we have to walk. With so many things that go into the grief experience, you know, our emotions, things, ways that our body responds, ways that we may question our faith or spirituality, things that are just different in our values and our priorities. What inspired you to dive so deeply into how anxiety is a part of grief? Well, I mean, it originally came up for me personally after my mother died. I had so much anxiety. It was my my predominant reaction to her death. You know, I became afraid of everything. I had never been afraid of flying or of everything was suddenly terrifying to me. My own body was really scary to me. I was really worried all the time that I was going to get sick and die, that there was something wrong with me. I was having panic attacks. I ended up in the ER a couple of times. And there was nowhere in anything I read that connected that to grief or to loss. And so for a long time, I just thought there was something extra wrong with me. <laughs> um, and and it was really not until I started working in hospice and really working in the field and suddenly seeing so many other people struggling with the same thing, like a lot of anxiety after a significant loss, other people having panic attacks, other people dealing with hypochondria, worrying about 
um, people coming home late, just automatically going to a place of fear all the time after going through loss. And I started writing about it about five years ago. I wrote an article for slate.com with the same title as my book, Anxiety, the Missing Stage of Grief. And I just got flooded with emails because prior to then there was nothing written about it. No one else was talking about this correlation between grief and anxiety. And because I was getting so many new clients as well that, that were dealing with this, I got such a, I just really got to wade into the issue of it and really learn a lot more about it and learn about what was working to kind of overcome it, to get through it. And um, felt finally like I really could sit down and write a book that would hopefully help other people. I'm just so beyond grateful for this book and the contribution it's going to make in the world because we are talking with people all the time. We're like, I don't, I didn't know anxiety was going to be part of this. I prepared mm-hmm. myself for sadness or I prepared myself maybe even for some anger and rage, although that's still kind of confusing. But the anxiety seems to catch people totally off guard and there's not a lot out there that helps people connect the dots. So thank you again. You're welcome. Yeah, I think it is a really surprising facet of grief. And I think that's why it's often overlooked or underlooked uh, in in the clinical world. I also think that we're growing more anxious as a society. You're seeing anxiety everywhere these days, and you're seeing it in young people more than ever, and it's being written and talked about. And I think that that is an additional aspect of it. How interesting to think that perhaps over time as our society and our culture changes, that that might be giving rise to particular aspects of grief being more or less prevalent. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think depression was a much more common cultural, psychological issue 30, 40 years ago. And now we're seeing this real uptick in anxiety. I think a lot of it's due to technology and social media and the fact that we don't know how to consume all the information that we're being exposed to on a daily basis. I think that that has actually made grief a little bit more challenging in some ways. Grief is already lonely. I mean, you're grieving when, when someone you love dies, the world kind of stops around you, right? And you feel completely alone. I remember just like walking through the grocery store after my dad died and, and just being like, oh my God, I can't believe people are just out doing normal stuff. Like my whole world had stopped. And that was, that was back in 2003. We didn't have Instagram and Facebook back then. And I can't imagine if I'd had that window into other people's bright, happy lives at the same time as I was grieving. And I can see how that lends itself to a bit of anxiety, this feeling that you're not living this perfect life that everybody else seems to be living, which we know isn't true, but, and just feeling so alone and so isolated. Yeah. It makes me wonder too about the piece around the fear that a lot of people have and the anxiety people have after someone dies that they'll die or someone else they love will die. And how, you know, you talked about the isolation part of grief. And if, you know, back in 2003, you weren't having to see everyone else having quote unquote amazing lives while you were feeling really deep in your grief. But then I also wonder of my parent dies of this particular illness. That's like an isolated event. But now thanks to the internet, I can read about 500 other cases of that same exact illness happening. And I wonder if that adds to the challenge of being able to tell myself, you know, it really is rare that people die. Definitely. One of the things about anxiety after grief is you become very hypervigilant. Um, so any little news story, any little spark of a thing will catch your attention. You know, you'll see a headline that says like cancer on the rise for young people. And I mean, we see this stuff before we're even out of bed, you know, our phones are just blazing with information all the time. And so when you're in that hypervigilant state, you catch those things much more often and start to dwell on them and ruminate on them. We haven't quite 
started to balance this all this information upload with learning how to be mindful and meditative and take space and breath and clear out our thoughts. Like that's something as a, as a culture we're going to have to really get better at. Yeah, like we have to learn when to open the windows and maybe to close them for a little while. Exactly. What are the particular pieces of like the mechanism of anxiety that you find that your clients and the people that you work with find to be the most helpful or illuminating for themselves of like, oh, that makes sense? There's a few things. Uh, you know, one of them is just an easy one that's somehow often one of the hardest ones, but it, it's just being compassionate with ourselves. I'm always surprised. And I don't know why I'm still surprised 10 years into this, but I'm always surprised at how much people beat themselves up when they're grieving. And I'm sure you've seen this, you know, they, they don't want to be grieving. They, they don't understand why they're still sad, why they're angry. They feel like they're stuck somewhere. Like they're just, they, they want to be done with this and they want to be doing it better <laughs> and over <laughs> it. Um, and so often when I start working with people, one of the really simple things that we do in the beginning is just having them give themselves some compassion for finding themselves in this place. You know, people don't like to be vulnerable and grief is one of the most vulnerable places we can find ourselves in. Um, so really just finding some compassion to start with and some forgiveness for being so vulnerable and being in this place. And then from there, really starting to understand our thoughts and how our brains work. There's a lot there. You know, when we're grieving, we spend an awful lot of time dwelling on the past, how things happened, what was the timeline and the lead up to the death? How did this all unfold? What could we have done differently? But so we're really dwelling in the past. And then we're also spending a lot of time worrying about the future. So we're off in the future thinking, what is life going to be like without this person? What is my college graduation going to be like? Or that wedding I have to go to next summer or whatever the things are that we're imagining um, how life will be. And we're spending very little time just being present and listening to our bodies and appreciating our surroundings and just bringing our awareness back to the present moment. And so that's another really important part of understanding how to move through anxiety. Another part of it is also understanding that when we lose somebody important in our lives, it's it's so scary. Um, it's such a reminder of our mortality that often our reaction is to become hypervigilant, like I talked about. And it's our way of trying to prepare for it, like if it's going to happen again. We feel like if we can prepare for it and think about it and worry about all the worst case scenarios, then that means we're getting on top of the thing. And so that if it comes up again somebody else gets sick or we get sick or whatever happens, we're going to be ready for it. The truth is all that preparation and worry is actually doing more damage than good. We're never going to be truly ready. There's nothing we could actually do to really prepare. We just feel like we're doing that. And really all it's doing is stressing us out more and creating this constant loop of anxiety. So kind of understanding that and beginning to release those worries and realizing that they're not helpful is part of it too. With that last one, it makes me think of, well, it makes me laugh because it, I've had many conversations with many of my friends who I tend to be more on the worrying side of things and mm -hmm. they tend to be more on the like, eh, everything's going to work out. But then when something does actually go wrong, I'm much more equipped to be like, okay, here's our plan where they're mm -hmm. like, ah, I didn't think anything was going to go wrong. And now I don't have any idea what to do. Right. It makes me think of the, the middle ground of there are some particular things we can do and think through to put into place versus just that spinning of the vigilance. Yeah. I think it's a, it, again, it's a fine balance. And I think it's a matter of recognizing when you're ruminating on worst case scenarios and when you're just simply being practical. 
So a lot of us, when we're anxious and we're in this grief anxiety, we really start just ruminating on worst case scenarios. Like when I was at my peak anxiety, a lot of it really came for me after I became a mother. My mom had been gone for about 12 years when I had my first daughter and my anxiety spiked so high after she was born. A lot of it was connected to having lost my mom and suddenly worrying that I was going to die and leave my daughter now too, just like she had done. But it also was that, you know, that vulnerable new mother state of worrying about this little infant that relies on you. And so when I was in my, my, my worst state during that time period, I would get like a pain in my side and I would immediately think, oh, that means I have cancer. And then I would go from there to I'm going to die. And then before I could even, before like a blip would happen, I was playing out this picture in my head of being in the hospital and saying goodbye to my kids and this whole thing, right? And it would happen so fast. I would go like zero to 60 with that so quickly. And then I would just, and then I would just be spinning in this really anxious state. For me, when I started to really work on my own anxiety, I had to learn to stop myself. You know, the pain in my side would happen. I would have the thought, oh my God, I have cancer. And then I would stop there and I'd be like, Claire, maybe, but we're not going to go down this whole road of, you know, playing out the deathbed scenario <laughs> with the kids. Um, and so stopping that part. And that was really key. We do need to pay, of course, pay attention to pains in our sides, but we don't always have to play out this big giant deathbed scenario that many people do. I can't tell you how many people I know who, who do this. I think I did it three times already this morning. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Um, and so when we learn how to stop that, and for me, stopping that meant doing some reverse work. So every time I caught myself, sometimes I couldn't catch myself fast enough. And I, there I was in the deathbed scenario again. And every time I found myself doing that, I would make myself do the opposite. I would make myself with just as much detail, imagine being at my daughter's wedding 30, 40 years from now. And it really struck me that we so often play out these negative scenarios and we rarely really ruminate on positive ones and how much we could benefit from doing that. Yeah. I love that idea of creating a counterbalance narrative. So at least mm-hmm. rather than just telling yourself, stop thinking that, which maybe works, but a lot of times doesn't work. Give yourself, your brain something else to do with that energy. Absolutely. You write in your book too about the connection between anxiety and grief and the importance of taking action. Can you say a little bit about that? You know, it was interesting for me to start to look at the idea of resilience within grief, which is kind of what I mean by taking action. I had never considered myself a very resilient person. Like that wasn't where I wanted to go with my grief. When my parents died, I really, there was part of me that really kind of wanted to just saturate in my grief. I wanted to be in that sadness all the time. And I wanted to be thinking about my grief and be just really moving through a lot of the feelings of it and the heaviness of it. And I realized after a long time that what that was about for me, and I see this with a lot of people as well, sitting in my grief made me feel connected to them. And I I felt like if I were to let go of my grief and to be more resilient, to start to move forward in my life, that that meant I was letting go of them. And so I had held on to these really deep pockets of sadness and anxiety as a way of kind of trying to hold on to them. When I really wanted to start letting go of my anxiety and a lot of the heaviness, for me, that meant taking some action to like pull myself out of that, that deep place and to like really force myself to start moving forward. And the biggest part of that for me was to recognize that it didn't mean I was letting go of them that I could find different and more positive ways to hold on to them. 
and still miss them and still, you know, mourn them in some ways. And yet at the same time, embrace my life again and have it, things feel meaningful and beautiful that two things could be true at once, right? I could miss them forever and always wish they were here and I could still live a great life. That took me a while to realize. Yeah, that permission, that joy does not eclipse the relationship or engagement in life does not eclipse the love that we have for the people who have died. Right. But, you know, it for me, like the action part came of just having to force myself a little bit, like one foot in front of the other to start to move forward and to break my life open again in positive ways. Once I did, the, the positive reinforcement came pretty quickly and my life really began to turn around. But I had to kind of take action to work on stopping my anxious thoughts, to work on, you know, moving forward in positive ways. Is there a connection at all between that, you know, taking action, taking charge in your life and and the mitigating of the anxiety? Yeah, I mean, I think they go hand in hand. I think that um I think the anxious people often get caught in that loop of the anxiety again, like your, your thoughts. I mean, you can really create these ruts in your brain almost where you're just looping around your anxiety. And so people are reluctant to start to take those steps forward of resilience or taking charge. And so there's a bit there where you have to kind of push the envelope and really push yourself to ask for help, to create more support systems in your life, to step away from the anxiety and release yourself from it. Well, Claire, thank you so much for taking time today to talk with me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And listeners out there, you can learn so much more about all the work that Claire has done to, you know, investigate really like how anxiety is connected with grief and what are some of the steps that you can take to help yourself in that. And also some ideas and suggestions for reaching out for additional help. Claire, is there anything else that you would point our listeners to in terms of your work? Everything's on my website, clairebidwellsmith.com. I have online courses and meditations and three books and um, all kinds of stuff there. I really, I just love, um, I love this work. I love helping other people feel less alone in their grief process and recognize that there are ways to, to heal and to thrive again. And listeners, I will link to uh, Claire's website and our show notes and to the book so you can find all the things that she just mentioned there. Thanks again, Claire. So appreciate your time today. Thank you. And listeners, if you're new to our show, you can find us on our website, dougy.org or Stitcher or any of the other places that you find your podcasts. And if you have an idea for a topic or a guest you think would be great for the show, please reach out at help at Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.